Today's scripture reading will be select passages from Hebrews chapter 3, 4, and 5. Chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Hebrews was written uh, to Christians in the city who were experiencing trouble and hardship, and they were on the verge of giving up. They were about to give up. And the author explains in this passage that uh, they're a lot like Israelites, journeying through the desert, journeying through the wilderness, where it's virtually impossible to survive. And the author really is saying that life, much like the lives of these Israelites in the ancient times, is a spiritual journey, a journey through the wilderness. And the only way that you can get through it, he says in chapter 3, verse 13, encourage one another daily. The Greek word for that is parakaleo. Encourage one another daily. It means encouragement. Comfort. The Latin word for comfort is not the gentle word that we think the word comfort means. It's really comforte, which is to encourage one another. Bring power with power to counsel one another. In fact, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the comforter, the one who comes with power, the one who is a counselor for us. In other words, the author here says that you'll never make it, you will never make it in life without strengthening daily, without encouragement daily, without counseling one another daily. So we're going to learn three things today. Why do we need it? What is it? How do you get it? How do you apply it? Why do we need it? What is it? How do you apply it? First, why do we need it? Verses 12 to 13 of chapter 3, the author says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but parakaleo, encourage, strengthen, comfort, counsel one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, this is uh, the end of the paragraph that begins 
Uh, it's not printed in your bulletins, but it begins in chapter 3, verse 7. And uh, basically he says, Therefore, as the, Holy, as, uh, as the Hi- uh, Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the desert. And he goes on and describes that time of testing for the ancient Israelites. And he goes to verse 11 just before the passage that we read here. Verse 11, So the Lord swore on oath in his anger, They shall never enter my rest. He was angry because they were testing him in the desert. And then he leads into verse 12. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. In other words, don't be like them. This is referring back to the time uh, where the Israelites were in the desert. The desert is what? It's an unlivable place. It's a barren land. And it came right after they were rescued from Egypt in the land of slavery. And in the ancient times, you can travel through the desert. You can migrate through the wilderness but you can never live in the desert. You can't live there. Now remember, the Israelites, they saw God do some great things while they were in slavery. They saw the plagues. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw these things. They saw God's presence. It was visible. It was palpable for them. But in the wilderness, God seemed distant. God seemed sometimes absent. They felt alone. And so you get to Exodus chapter 17. The Israelites, they quarreled with Moses who led them out, of the, out through the desert, out of Egypt. And they said to Moses, give us water. And Moses said, why do you put the Lord your God to the test? But they were thirsty for water, and they grumbled. That's Exodus chapter 17. Now think about this. The author of Hebrews is writing to sufferers, people who are suffering. He's trying to encourage them to tell them not to give up. Don't give up. He says, don't be like them. They gave up in the wilderness. They grumbled. They lost heart. They shrunk back in the wilderness. In other words, what he's saying is, first of all, life is a spiritual wilderness. We're just like Israelites. What does that mean? Life, first of all, is barren. So, yes, if you have a family, that's great. If you have a successful career, that's great. If you are living in wealth, that is great. If you found a spouse, somebody that you can enjoy the rest of your life with, that's great. But none of these things are ever going to quench the deepest needs of your soul, the deepest needs of your heart, what you've been made for. By the way, that the, it's not just the Bible that says that. Ernest Becker, who wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book in, 1970, in the 1970s, he wrote this book that was recently out of print, came back into print recently, uh, The Denial of Death. He basically asserts this, that the reason that we per- pursue family The reason we pursue wealth in the first place, the reason we pursue success, the reason we pursue love partners in our lives is because we're searching for meaning. We're searching for worth because we know one day it's all going to come to an end. We're all going to die. In other words, life is a wilderness, and we're overwhelmed at the thought of the end. What's at the end? We're overwhelmed by this. And, And as a result, to cope with death, and that the meaning of our lives, that there may be no meaning, there may be no significance, uh, we're looking for success. We're looking for love. We're trying to, we're trying to cope with this uh, through our marriage lives, our jobs. In other words, we're in the wilderness. And uh, through this entire journey in the wilderness, we're looking for fulfillment and peace, what the authors of the ancient books in the Old Testament call shalom. We're looking for ultimate peace in our lives. And it's a trap to think that we can actually settle down here. That's what the author is saying. You think you're trying to settle down here. 
You're trying to look for an ultimate resting place here. And, and he says, you're suffering. And he's reminding them that you can't settle down here. You can't buy into these things because you're young or because you're pretty or because you have some money or because you have a family or your friends. We're all in the desert. We're all in the wilderness. All these things are like a mirage. It's only going to increase your thirst. You're going to die of thirst. So we're all in the wilderness. That's one of the first things that he says. The second thing he says is that he implies here is that in Egypt, God seemed present. We saw the plagues. God seemed visible, but in the wilderness, he seemed distant. He seemed absent. And that's why they questioned him. They questioned, that's why they tested him. You know, what they were really saying to Moses was, does God really care? I mean, we see him at a distance, but does he really care for me? Does he really care for us? You see, it's very hard to believe in God. It's very hard to trust in God when God seems absent in our lives when we're suffering, especially when he doesn't seem to be answering when we're praying. Now, I'm going to tell you this as a pastor, that most times in life are like that. Most of the times in your life, you're going to be confused. You're going to be suffering. God is going to seem distant a lot of times in your life. God, it's, a lot of times in your life are going to be filled with darkness, Dark times, dark moments, dark seasons in your life. So if this world is really, really a place where uh, the best things in your life uh, are bound to disappoint you, they're not going to satisfy you, and you're not going to get your answers readily from God all the time, where you're going to be in a desert, you're going to feel like you're in a wilderness, we need parakaleo. We need somebody in our lives. We need people in our lives that are going to encourage us strengthen us, remind us, pursue us, and comfort us. Why do we need parakaleo? Why do we need this kind of encouragement? Because we're in a wilderness, and we're weak, and we're often thirsty. That's why. So we need daily encouragement, something that comes with power. Now, what is it? On one hand, if you read all the chapters straight through from chapters 3 to 5 in Hebrews, and I'm really, what we really provided was a summary, and that's what we're going through here. The Hebrews author, he starts out, he gives some very stern pre- prescriptions, very, very harsh prescriptions. He basically says, the Israelites rebelled. I'm kind of paraphrasing. He says, the Israelites, they rebelled, and God was angry at them. And as a result, the corpses, their bodies, their corpses fell in the desert. That's literally what he says. They were, they were scattered throughout the desert. And he virtually repeats this about four times throughout chapters 3 through 5. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 12, and basically what he says is, so you've got to be careful. See to it, brothers. You've got to be careful. Don't disbelieve. Don't have a sinful heart. Don't turn away from God. And sometimes he's very, very harsh. He says, because in the wilderness, their corpses, they fell in the desert. But on the other hand, The author begins harsh, but he's almost immediately after. You see chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, what do you see? What do you see at the tail end? Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that you may receive mercy and find grace that will help us in our time of need. And on one hand, he's very harsh. There are stern warnings, stern prescriptions. On the other hand, he's gentle. There are assurances. There is an invitation. Huge swings. Why does he do that? You see this everywhere in the Bible. Why does the author do that? 
You see this with Jesus in the Gospels? Because on one hand, when you're suffering, sometimes when you're suffering, you need to hear truth. You need to hear challenge. Why? Because God is probably in that season of your life trying to teach you that nothing else is going to satisfy the deep longing of your soul. And your brokenness is really a result of your distrust, your rebellion. And because you thought that God is distant, because you're in the wilderness and God seems absent, you thought you could survive without him. You felt like you had to survive without him. And now you're lost and you're wandering. On the other hand, there are times when God is just drawn into your tears, just drawn into your agony. He's just drawn into your suffering. So on one hand, there's truth. There's a lesson. There's a challenge. On the other hand, there are tears. There's an invitation. There's an embrace. What does this all mean? One, you can't survive without both. You need both in your lives. You can't grow without both truth and tears, law and love in our lives. In the book of Ruth, you have Naomi. The Old Testament book of Ruth, there's Naomi. Naomi lost her husband and both of her sons. And now she's too old to remarry. In these ancient times, that meant that her life was over. So she's in despair. She says, my name used to be Naomi, but now call me Mara. Naomi means sweet. She says, now it's a play on her name. She says, I used to be sweet. Now call me bitter. Call me Mara. It's a play on her words. It's a play on her name. What does Ruth say? Ruth is her daughter-in-law. What does she say? She says, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, that's where I'm going to rest my head. I'm going to walk with you. That's encouragement. That's comfort. That's walking with someone. But on the other hand, you have Genesis chapter 3. And here's Adam and Eve just after they had rebelled against God. They'd sinned and they're hiding. They're naked and they're hiding. And God is walking in the garden through the cool of the day. He's walking. And he starts to ask Adam questions. Now you have to ask yourself, is he asking, God these, is he asking Adam these questions because he doesn't know the answer? Of course not. He's counseling Adam. He's asking these questions of Adam because he wants Adam to know. And he's harsh. And he calls him out on his sin. And he's stern. And there's a curse. Very, very harsh. We need truth. A truth that walks with us. A truth that walks beyond us. A, a wisdom that is beyond us. In John chapter 11, you have both. In John chapter 11, you, Lazarus, Jesus' very close friend, Lazarus dies. And Jesus shows up four days late. And both Martha and Mary approach Jesus at separate times, and they say virtually the same thing to Jesus. They say to Jesus, if you had been here earlier, my brother would not have died. To Martha, Jesus does what? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And basically what he says is, do you believe this? There's truth. There's a challenge. It's somewhat tough, given the fact that this person's brother had just passed away. But Mary, she says the same thing. If, you know, if you were here earlier, my brother would not have died. What does Jesus say? Immediately after, take me to the place where you laid him. And he weeps. On Same season. Same narrative. On one hand, there's truth. On the other hand, there are tears. On one hand, there's a lesson. On the other hand, there's just embrace. There's just love, you see. 
Encourage one another daily. You need both of these things to survive. You need both of these things to get through the wilderness in our lives. Remember, the word comfort is with power. There's a power that strengthens you through truth, and there's a power that strengthens you through tears. You need both. So we talked about why we need it. It's because we're in the desert, and we're weak. We're often so weak, and we're thirsty. We talked about what it is. It's truth and tears. It's law and love. How do you get it? Some of us in this room are into the tears. We're very empathic people. And so you're probably in certain relationships that are a lot longer than you're really supposed to have been because there's almost this guilt from walking away from a person, even though you know that this particular relationship isn't good for you. But you're very, very feely, and you're very sentimental, and you're too weak, too afraid, too immature to tell a person truth. Other people in this room, you're into the truth. You're very, very analytical, very insightful. And it's very, things that seem a little bit confusing to people about themselves are very, very plain to you. And so it's easy for you in any given season, in any given situation, to see what the solution is. And basically your frustration is what? Why aren't these people listening? Why don't they see this? Now, oftentimes we're really good at, all of us here are good at one or the other, but you need to be both. This is a calling for us to be both. And that's why we need to look to the ultimate counselor, the wonderful counselor who is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's going to give you exactly what you need. If you want to be a counselor, if you want to counsel somebody, you need to look to Jesus. Or else you're not going to be much use. You're not going to be much use because you're either going to be too much into the tears or you're going to be too much into truth. Now, if you look at uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 15, The author says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Present tense, just as we are. And yet, he's without sin. In other words, he's been there. He's been there just as we are currently enduring. And yet, he has been without sin. He's without sin. Why is Jesus such a good counselor? One, He's been tempted in every way, so he's been there. In a very small town in Pennsylvania uh, in the early 1900s, there was a doctor, Evan O'Neill Kane, who really wanted to prove the use of local anesthesia as a means for uh, treating minor surgeries, as opposed to using general anesthesia. Back then, they would just put you under, and that was dangerous. It was harmful. It took a toll on your body, and there were also a lot of risks associated with that. This is a true story. Um, uh, risks associated with that. Um, So he wanted to test the use of local anesthesia. In fact, he was published. Now, the only problem was he couldn't find a volunteer in the early 1900s to volunteer with the use of local anesthesia. It's unheard of, this treatment, this use. And he searched for a while. Eventually, one patient, one patient volunteered. So in front of his brother, who was also a doctor, in front of two other doctors and his nurses, Dr. Kane performed, he performed nearly 4,000 appendectomies. He went into this patient, applying local anesthesia, and uh, on February 15, 1921, he successfully completed the surgery, and the patient said that he was feeling fine after the procedure. 
He was feeling fine. And this report was published in the New York Times. I actually had to pull it up and read it, see it for myself. February 16th, the New York Times published, also in 1933, Popular Science uh, released uh, a reference about Dr. Evan and Neil Cain, numerous other scholarly journals. And it was published, it was a remarkable story really for two reasons. One, it wasn't necessarily because of the intent of the surgery. Dr. Cain proved himself right. He proved this point. Local anesthesia was a viable alternative to uh, be applied in surgical procedures. But the real reason why it was published in the papers was because of the uniqueness of the patient himself. It was Dr. Cain. Dr. Cain himself. In fact, after the surgery, he said that now I could show that if a surgeon can actually do the work himself, there will be no fear on the part of the patient of having another surgeon do it for him. You see, Christianity is the only faith in the world that says that the creator God put himself on the operating table, put himself in the operating room. Do you feel rejected? Jesus Christ was rejected. Have you ever lost big? Jesus Christ grieved over his loss. You ever feel misunderstood? Jesus Christ knows the loneliness, almost the despair of being misunderstood. It means that no one in the world, no one in history could have ever experienced the darkness that Jesus Christ experienced when he was rejected, when he was killed. No one would ever experience what it would mean to be bankrupt, what it means to be in poverty like Jesus, the king of the universe, sacrificing his status, sacrificing his position, his power. Everything was lost. And so he knows. And so he understands. And he understands with tears. When Jesus tears, when he cries, when he weeps, it's not because he's just trying to feel for you. It's because he knows. When he wept over Lazarus in the grave, it's because he knows what it will be like to be in the grave. He knows. He knows the suffering of sin. He knows the brokenness of sin. This text says that he was tempted in every way, and yet he was without sin. He was without sin. He was tempted in every way, and yet he was without sin. He completely obeyed. There's the truth. That's the truth part of Jesus. It means he's been in our shoes, and yet he obeyed. He's been here, and he's experienced the pain to greater dimensions, the greatest dimensions. And yet, because he has perfect love, he's absolutely sucked deep into our pain, and he knows it, and he's felt it, and he feels it, and he grieves. Those are the tears. If you've been mocked, Jesus has been mocked. If you've been broken, Jesus has been broken. If you've been accused, if you've been guilty, if you're in sin, look at John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, you have this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. She was dragged out, caught in the act of adultery. She's naked. She's about to be stoned because in those days, if you were caught in the act of adultery, if you have the right witnesses, if you, uh, all the nuances of the law were, were fulfilled, you could be stoned to death. What does Jesus say? He asks the woman, after everyone who could have stoned her walks away, he asks her, woman, has anyone condemned you? She says, no. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Ultimate counselor, wonderful counselor. He says, on one hand, because he's perfect, there's this perfect balance of law and love. 
On one hand, he says, I don't condemn you. That's love. On the other hand, he says, he says, go and sin no more. There's law. On one hand, he says, I've paid the price. I will pay the price. And with weeping, I'm on the cross for you. There is the love. On the other hand, he says, now go and sin no more. There's the law. The perfect blend, intermingled, perfect mix of law and love. The love brings credibility to the law. The love honors the law. The law honors the love, you see. Some of us, we're strong in one over the other. And we know this. You have to know this. Love without truth is not really love. It weakens the love because you're selfish and because you're cowardly. It may feel good, but the person needs to change, you see. If you really love this person, that person needs to change. That's the, that's the only way they're going to benefit from your love. You're depriving them of the one thing that they need. But similarly, truth without love is not even really truth. It doesn't bring credibility to the truth. It's dangerous, you see. Jesus Christ, wonderful counselor, perfect in both. He doesn't say, now, go and sin no more, and then you will not be condemned. That would have been cruel. That would have been incredibly cruel to base his love, earning his love on your behavior. Instead, what he says, I want you to know that you are not condemned. There's the love. I want you to base your life on that. I want you to base your behavior as a response to that. My love is perfect. I know all that you need. Rid yourself of sin. He hates to sin because it's hurting you. It's destroying you. And yet, you weren't designed for that. And yet, he loves you so deeply, he will not leave you nor forsake you. Parents, have you ever said that to your children? No matter what age, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Teach them that word. Teach them that phrase. Let them remember that. Therefore, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace. Now, if you read through chapter 5, that's the end of chapter 4. If you read through chapter 5, you get to verse 6. You get to this kind of weird line. He says, you, he's talking to Jesus, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's an unusual person. He's, he's very rarely mentioned in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, there were no priest kings. There was no such thing as a priest who was a king or a king who was a priest. Not officially, at least. Why? Because kings, they represented God before the people. And so they represented the law, enforcing the law. God's character was etched into the law, and they were called to enforce it. But a priest, they go the other way. They represented the people. They mediated for the people to God. And so on one hand, you have a king who represents the law. You have a priest, though, who represents the love. You have a king who represents truth. You have a priest who represents the tears. The two things, those two roles are diametrically opposed. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. On one hand, you need both that are together. You need both of them at the same time. But on the other hand, they're usually in conflict with each other. They usually, one, comes, one follows the other, one comes before the other. They're diametrically opposed. Then you get to Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Who's Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a priest king. The only one of his kind. 
In the book of Genesis, he was a priest king of a city called Salem. Salem, the word Salem in Hebrew, shalom, means what? Ultimate peace. So in this land, this priest king brought ultimate peace to Salem. He restored order and justice and yet at the same time ruled with grace and love. He was very unique, very little said about him, but then the Hebrew authors ties it together. He says, God says to Jesus, you are a priest forever in that order, in the order, in the line of Melchizedek, you are a priest forever. In other words, Melchizedek was merely a forerunner to the true priest king. He was just a glimpse, a shadow, because he was still a human being. He was still flawed, and he, that means his love was still not perfect, and his law was still not perfect. And Salem, even though it was a good city, even though it was a peaceful city, even Abraham came and offered tithes to Melchizedek. It was still a flawed city and a broken city. But the author here says Melchizedek was merely a glimpse, a forerunner to Jesus Christ, the true priest and king. Because he came to save, we need both or we'd be lost. And so on one hand, Jesus Christ is committed to justice. He's committed to order. He's committed to the law, and he fulfills everything. There's this passage in John chapter 7 where Jesus' brothers tell Jesus, let's show yourself up. You are a man of miracles. Let's show the world. Let's go into the city. Let's go into town. And Jesus refuses. But there is a ceremony there. And so what does he do? Even though he refuses to go in to show himself, he peeks into the ceremony. He enters in to fulfill the law. To the nth degree, Jesus Christ fulfills the law, and he does it for you because we couldn't fulfill the law. We can't fulfill the law the way he does. Perfect picture of law and lawfulness and righteousness and holiness and justice and order. That's Jesus Christ. Committed to this, he's a king. But he's compassionate. What he says to the adulterous woman in John chapter 8, he's loving and he is kind and he is gentle and he cries, he weeps and he prays and he petitions. In fact, you see this in verse 7. He offers sacrifices and petitions and prayers to God. He's a priest, a perfect priest. Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem. In the book of Revelation, What do you see? The new Jerusalem, the true city of God, and whose king, the one who sits on the throne is who? The lamb that sits on the throne, Jesus Christ, the priest and king. Ultimate love representing the law. They come together. How do you bring the two together? These two things are diametrically opposed. How do you bring them together? We tend to say, well, first you've got to pay the price. You've got to earn my love again. That's what we say. You've got to pay the price. Law over love. That's what we say. Or you're going to say, you know what? I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to let it. I'm not going to deal with it. It's out of my hands. You're going to put forgiveness or love over the law. That's us. We never do both at the same time. But Jesus Christ, the great high priest, in the order of Melchizedek, how does he do it? The cross is where the two things, the two arms that are diametrically opposed are nailed together. That's the cross. In chapter 5, verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears 
to the one who could save him from death. In other words, there was a time when Jesus himself cried out. There was a time when Jesus himself cried out and said, help me, save me. And he did it with screams, and he did it in suffering, he did it in in tears. It happened in Gethsemane, right before Jesus was arrested, and it happened again on the cross. In the garden, Jesus Christ prays to the Father. He says, will you take this cup from me? He's talking about, the cup that he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath. He says, I know you are just, but will you spare me? But then he obeys. He says, not my will, but yours be done. He obeys. There's the law. Somebody had to pay. He says, I will pay. Somebody had to pay or else God would not be just. Evil would win. Evil would triumph. And so someone has to pay, and God is a God of justice. God is a God of order and law. That's how you have peace. That's how you restore order. Jesus says, I will pay. I will pay the price. Somebody had to pay. I will pay the price. Sin had to be dealt with. Jesus Christ says, your will be done. I will pay. Look at the law of God. Look at the justice of God. Look at the righteousness of God. Look at the holiness of God in Jesus. Look at the obedience of Jesus. Because God is willing to sacrifice his own son, you know he is just. You know on one hand, sin is very, very serious. Sin destroys, sin disintegrates, and you know it meant it was real because he had, he had to send his son. Somebody had to pay, and, G- and God was willing to sacrifice his own son, but Jesus Christ weeps over Jerusalem. Jesus Christ weeps at death. Jesus Christ, he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me, he says. He did it with tears at Gethsemane. He did it with tears on the cross, and he did it for us. He did it for us. There's the love of God. And yet he did it without sin. He did it perfectly. He did it fully and perfectly. On the cross, you have love honoring the law, and you have love honoring love, uh, law. You have love honoring the law. You have the law honoring the love. He brings it together. The love of God and the law of God embrace. They kiss on the cross at the death of Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus Christ is a wonderful counselor. He is a compassionate counselor. He is a loving counselor. On the cross, you have the law bringing credibility to the love. And you have the love bringing credibility to the law. If Jesus only valued the law, there would be no need for the cross. He wouldn't have had to come. We would all get what we deserved. And if he only valued love, there would be no need for him to come to the cross because he would just accept us just as we are. Why didn't he, why, why didn't he just let the adulterous woman go? In John chapter 8, he could have said, I don't condemn you. Go. It's because of sin. She is guilty. There is law. But then he says, I don't condemn you. Why? Because he's going to take our condemnation. He would drink the cup of God's wrath. What he's saying is, you aren't executed because I will be executed. Lazarus can come out of the tomb because I will enter into the tomb. I'm going to get the stones. The tomb is going to roll over me. 
The law and the love will honor each other and will be fulfilled. That's why he's credible. That's why we need to listen. That's why our hearts have to be soft to Jesus. Does that move you? Does that get you? Is your heart softening to that? That's why we need to listen. It's why we love to listen. Jesus is a king. We have to listen to him. But Jesus as the priest king, we love to listen to him. We embrace him. He's a wonderful counselor. Now, before we close this time, I want to just, uh, I have to say this. Um, here's how you know you haven't come to Jesus as your counselor. Here's how you know that Jesus is still, you might have grown up in the church, but this is how you know that Jesus is still just a teacher in your life or just a moral example in your life, even though you think you're a Christian. The first is you don't listen to people around you who really know you. You don't listen to people that you've spent time with who you know deep inside, they know you. They know enough. You know, it's one thing if I, from the pulpit, say something to you. You can say, well, he's not really talking about me. I mean, he doesn't really know me. You can, it's easy for you. You can get away with that. It's easy to duck truth from the pulpit. We do that all the time. We hide from the truth all the time. But if Jesus isn't wonderful to you, if Jesus isn't a wonderful counselor to you, as somebody who brings truth regularly to you, if you haven't heard truth regularly in your life, he's just a teacher. He's just an example. If you haven't heard truth with tears that melts you into the truth, if you haven't been melted by the gospel in your life, by the truth of the gospel. You don't have to necessarily hear it from the same person. You know that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. If that truth has melted you, then you can hear truth from others. Sometimes it's packaged harshly, but you can hear truth from others. If you are too proud to admit that, if you're too proud to admit that you need to listen to that, he's just an example in your life. He's just a religious leader in your life. We're all adults here. Belief, faith, the kind that saves you, it votes with its own feet. Your faith will vote with its feet. That's how you know. It's how you know if you've allowed Jesus to speak into your life. It takes a certain kind of courage. It takes a certain kind of humility at the same time for you to take responsibility for your sin. When you do that, you're going to see God's love in Christ. You're going to see God's love in Christ because you're going to see the cost that was paid so that you would not be condemned. You know what religion is? Religion is what? Go, uh, sin no more, and you won't be condemned. You're never going to know where you stand. You're always going to be anxious. You're always going to be angry, and you're going to feel like God owes you. But the gospel is, I don't condemn you, so go, sin no more. Love and love. You need that. How do you apply that? You apply it in two ways. First, you got to apply it patiently. If you look at the very last verse, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered prayers and petitions to the one, with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard. That means that in Gethsemane, Jesus Christ was asking to be spared from death. And a text says, and, and it says he was heard. But he went to the cross anyway. He died anyway. But, he rose again. 
that means that Jesus didn't necessarily receive what he prayed for originally to be spared in that way. What he received was even more glorious. That's why he was exalted. That's why every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know why? You know why he was raised? You know why he sits at the right hand of God as the, exec, as the prime minister, the executor of all that we see today? Do you know why? It's because he obeyed fully. And he, and he said, not my will, yours be done. And he went, he went all the way to his death. And even though he prayed, he was heard because he rose again. And what he received was even more glorious Everybody else who saw Jesus die on the cross said, what good could come from this? This is horrible. They were jeering and mocking and spitting and throwing things at him, and yet they said, this is horrible. What good can come from this? And yet, the greatest good, the salvation of the world, came from that. That's an amazing text. It's very important for us because when you're in the wilderness and when you're praying and you feel like God is distant, And when you're crying out and God seems absent to you and doubts are flooding in and you're wrestling because God is not necessarily doing what you thought, what you expected him to do, you have to know that he is there. Jesus Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why? So he will be there with you. He would be present for you. And he's parakaleo-ing right now he's encouraging you strengthening you comforting you why are you even able to bring truth what gives you a sinner the credibility to bring truth one your tears but more importantly more deeply what the holy spirit of god working to bring that consistent truth about our idols and sins and god's love and faithfulness to you That's how you know. That's how you know. You do it patiently. That means that even though you don't receive what you're asking for, you have to know that he's there. You have to know that he's present. You have to know that he is for you, encouraging you, cheering you, comforting you, proud of you. Knowing that he went through the ultimate wilderness, the ultimate darkness for you. And even though it seemed meaningless to everybody else when he died, it was for God's glory and it was for our good. Then surely he would work through your sufferings for his glory and your good. Do you see that? That's how you endure your suffering. That's how you endure spiritual wilderness. The second thing is much more practical. We come all the way back to the beginning. Verse 13, encourage one another daily. That word encouraged, we said, was parakaleo, the same word for the Holy Spirit. So basically, let the Holy Spirit use you to strengthen one another daily. Now, that's a soft phrase because I'm going to kind of break it down. The word parakaleo is para, means it's for coming alongside somebody, walking beside somebody. Para, right, being with somebody. Kaleo means what? To yell at them, to scream at them. The images of somebody walking alongside you, grabbing you arm in arm, walking alongside with you, screaming into your ear. That sounds like a good friendship. Screaming into your ear. 
It's basically someone who comes alongside you and is yelling at you, kind of, but they're doing it with tears. They're moving you because they're so moved by you. They're broken by you. may not be in the way you want. It may not, you may not hear it the way you want, but they're broken for you, and they're coming with tears, and they're reasoning with you, and they're exhorting you, and they're admonishing you with law and love. As we enter into the new year, this is a calling. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to receive truth with the tears that Jesus cried on the cross for you, that he shed on the cross for you. It's also a challenge. It's a challenge for you with tears to bring truth into your home. You know, we all bring resolutions into the new year, things that we're going to break. You know, they say that the new year, the highest number of registrations uh, and sign-ups for health clubs, right? Fitness clubs, right? Um, This isn't about New Year's resolutions. This is truth that will move you, compel you because of your love for Christ, because of his love for you. If you If you know how much you're treasured by Christ, you would treasure him. If you know how much he bled and cried out for you, you would bleed and cry out for others. Will you come alongside them with love and tears and say, you know what, today, with tears, with love, I'm going to bring truth into this home. I'm going to bring truth into my marriage with tears because you love this person. I'm going to bring truth that takes courage, a certain kind of courage, a certain kind of humility. That's what it takes. It's something, it's supernatural. It's not natural. It's supernatural. But I'm committed to doing this to my close friends, to the ones whom I love. I'm challenged to do this because, and I need this to desire that. Folks, friends, what is the meaning of a community group if we're not able to bring truth and tears into our communities? And it's not just about one person transforming. This, it's the Hebrews because it's plural. It's meant for the corporate body of the church. If we are committed to doing that as a church, communities will change. That's how culture changes. Let's bring that into the new year by resting on the foundation of Christ and his character and his love. Let's pray.